Our line by line, verse by verse study of the book of Acts now brings us to the eighth chapter and we will be covering the first eight verses in our study today with a message entitled How God Used Difficulties and Persecutions in the Early Church. I have a subtitle as well, and that is God's Purpose for Difficulty. Because God not only used difficulty in the early church, he uses difficulty in our lives now. Now, Jesus went out of his way to let us know that just because we are Christians doesn't mean we aren't going to have dark times, suffering, hardships or difficulties. He went out of his way to let us know that we will still have them, that getting saved doesn't exempt you from difficulties. And I am sorry, I'll apologize for all pastors everywhere who said that if you come to Jesus, you'll never have any more problems, you'll never have any more struggles. They were lying to you. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, Jesus said in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you, that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now I've said before, you never see that on, as a plaque on a kitchen wall. In this world, you will have tribulation. It's just not a promise we ever go, I claim in the name of Jesus, that promise. Matthew 5, 11, Jesus said, blessed are you when you are reviled, when men revile, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. They bear false witness. You're blessed for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. Now, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, 13 of the New Testament books were written by Paul. I could give you many examples of him talking about how God uses difficulties, but I just want to give you one. This is Romans 8, 18. Paul says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not to be worthy to be compared of the glory that shall be revealed in us. And Paul suffered greatly. We're going to see that throughout the book of Acts, the kind of things that Paul suffered. In fact, when Paul was called by Jesus, Jesus said to Paul, I have many things for you to suffer. That's how he brought him to Christ. I have many things. And he says, I don't consider the sufferings of this world to be compared to the glory revealed in us. This isn't the end. The difficulties, the hardships, the suffering now isn't the end. There's a glory to be revealed in us. James the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James said this, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. God's got a purpose for the testing of your faith. Before that, he said, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because the testing of your faith produces endurance. God isn't just allowing difficulties and hardships in your life to allow difficulties and hardships. He's got purposes for them. I liken it to those of you guys who are in the military and you went to boot camp. And when you got there, they said, we want you guys to be so pleased and be such, such comfort here. We want to coddle you while you're here at boot camp because we really want you to have a good experience and get more people enrolled. That didn't happen, did it? From, from day one until the end, it was miserable. And they put difficulties and hardships on you because they were building character inside of you. And we see the difference when someone goes into boot camp and when someone comes out of boot camp, there has been a character that has been developed. And so God uses hardship and difficulties in our lives to help develop, develop us into the men and women God wants us to be. Now, Peter, the kind of head disciple, 
said in 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials which will come upon you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. He could have just said, don't think it's strange that trials happen to you, but he said, don't think it's strange that fiery trials happen to you. So it's like a step up. And finally, we have this great promise by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So God is even able to take something bad that happens to you and bring that about to, to something good. See, we don't know when something happens whether or not that is ultimately good or bad. And God is able to bring it about to the good. Now, there are very few arguments that atheists have against the existence of God. Proving that God doesn't exist is very hard. Proving a negative in philosophy is very, very difficult. You've got a huge task. If you want to prove that I didn't speed on the way over here today, that's very difficult to do. How are you going to prove that? You've got to go and get some eyewitness that had me speeding or a ticket. But proving that I sped would be very easy because you get a ticket and you go, look, he got a ticket. He was speeding. And you could ask me, did you speed? Truth is a Christian. You can prove positives. It's very hard to prove negatives. And so an atheist will say, well, I don't believe God exists because you can't have suffering and God at the same time. If God is good, there won't be suffering. They can't exist at the same time. The problem with that thinking is you don't know what's good or bad at the time. You may break your leg and think this is horrible, but that may result in you not being someplace where something worse would have happened to you. And later on you go, it was a good thing that I broke my leg. And these happen, you know, they happen. They happen in our lives where something happens that looks like it's bad, but it ends up being the best thing that ever happened to us. As the great theologian Garth Brooks said, <laughs> sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers, right? He'd ran into an old girlfriend he wanted to marry and he went, thank God that he didn't answer my <laughs> prayers. That's what that song's about. And that's what we're learning. That's what we see with God. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers. Now, I don't want to make it sound like God never delivers us from tribulations because he does. We talked about miracles and that miracles happen today in Acts chapter three in a study that was entitled Miracles in the Early Church or How God Used Miracles in the Early Church. You can go to our website. You can look up Acts. You can go to chapter three. You can listen to that study where we talk about miracles and evidence for miracles happening today and why miracles were clustered around Moses, Elijah, Jesus, the apostles. And then here in certain instances, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. So God does deliver, but God also doesn't deliver. Some, sometimes by your faith, you receive a healing. And sometimes by faith, you trust God that he didn't heal you. Both of them are faith. Faith is not the absence of evidence. Talk, speaking of atheists, atheists like to say that faith is absence of evidence. That's not true. 
Faith is believing the evidence that you have seen, trusting God for that evidence. There is more evidence for the existence of God. Proving the existence of God is easier than proving that God doesn't exist. The atheist has a harder problem in proving that he doesn't exist than you and I do in proving that he does exist. The fine tuning of the universe being one of those. Um, several other things that we could point to. I'll, I'll do in another study, but I'm not going to do that right now. So we want to focus on difficulties and sufferings and how God used them. So we pick it up in Acts chapter one, where it says, now Saul was consenting to his death. And right away, we find a problem with the way the chapters are broken up. I'm so thankful that hundreds of years ago, they took time and it kind of evolved, but it took time for chapters and verses to get in the Bible because we can go there. I can tell you what it is. You can read it. You can take notes. You can go and look it up later. But when they made chapter divisions, sometimes they broke them up in the middle of a thought, which I don't know why they did that, but they did it. This is one of them. Stephen has been stoned by the time this chapter starts. He stood before the Sanhedrin. At the end of it, he said, you always resist the Holy Spirit like your fathers did, and you killed the chosen one. He, he, they, they killed the prophets and you killed the Messiah, is what he said. They plugged their ears, screamed, rushed at him, pushed him outside and stoned him. And, and many of them took off their robes and they laid them down at the feet of Saul of Tarsus, who is also Paul, who will become an apostle. And he is on the side of the religious leaders. That's what we just read. And Saul was consenting to his death. And they stoned him. Very dramatic. He's as he's being stoned and the stones are taking the life from him. He cries out, Lord, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he falls down on his knees, the Bible says. And he says, oh, God, don't hold this against them. And he breathes his last and he dies. And here is Saul consenting to his death and Saul will be forgiven and become the greatest first century leader, writing 13 books in the New Testament and being used by God to spread the gospel in all of Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, over into Europe, into Greece, and then back over into Ephesus, which is again in Turkey. God used him in three different missionary journeys, even bringing the gospel to Rome and to a church he didn't start, but that God ended, ended up using him in that. So this is where it starts. And Saul was consenting to his death. So Saul was a part of this. And then we read, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church. This was a heavy persecution. We're going to read of some of the things that happened to the church during this time. It would be a persecution that we would not want to go through, which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. They were scattered to Judea and Samaria. Now, do you remember what Jesus said to the apostles in Acts 1.8? But wait in Jerusalem and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So the persecution of the early church, which is called a great persecution, brings the, the gospel to the region of Judea and Samaria. God's using the persecution of the church, the pressure to spread the church out. They would have stayed in Jerusalem longer, but now God, it's time for you guys to get out there. And so something negative happens, but God uses it for a positive. 
Now in verse two, it says, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Stephen was a young man who had died before his time, was murdered. And they, they picked up his body, devout men, and they brought him and they buried him. Now in their day, they would lay him out. They would wash the body. They would wrap it in cloths and they would wrap up spices, myrrh and frankincense and other spices with the body because it was going to decay and they were perfuming it from the decay. And when they did that, like many of us who would know someone that we loved who was murdered, they began to weep. They began to lament. It says they made a great lament over him. Now, some might think that this is inappropriate, that Stephen's in the presence of God. He was a martyr and you're going to lament greatly over him. That's inappropriate. Why would I say that? Because I've met people who, when someone loses someone close to them, will say something to them like, why are you so, so upset? They're in the presence of God. Sometimes the things that we say as Christians to people that are facing grief are not helpful. And we've got to think it through. They don't, they're not grieving because they're in heaven. They're grieving because their husband, their wife, their child, their mother, their father is gone and they're going to miss them. They may be reunited one day, but if you were to lose your wife now being alive somewhere, but you were never going to see her again, there would be a deep grief in your life, much less gone from this earth. And I can tell you as someone who lost someone close to me, my wife passed away in 2012 from lung cancer. And when she died, just the fact that her personality was gone, it was just a weird, strange feeling. Those of you who have lost loved ones, you know what that feeling is like. And some people said some things to me that were pretty amazing. They said some hurtful things. When someone is, is mourning, you've got to allow them. To, it's not inappropriate for Christians to mourn. When I was in my early 20s, I had a good friend of mine who lost his little sister. She had asthma and one night when no one else was around, she had an asthma attack and she died from it, suffocated from the asthma. And um, the family was just devastated. She was in her teens, just devastated that this had happened, finding their daughter at home. It was just horrible. Well, my buddy was a believer and he had led her to Christ not long before she died. And when he showed up with the family on the day of the funeral, he had a smile on his face and a skip in his step and said, why are you so sad? She's in the presence of God. Let's rejoice that she's with God now. Now, he's not wrong that she is with God, but is unthoughtful towards the family. The Bible says mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. The best thing to do with someone when they're losing someone or they're grieving for a long time and don't seem to be getting over it is to come alongside of them, to hug them, to let them know you love them, to sit with them sometimes quietly. You don't always have to quote verses at them. As pastors, sometimes we feel like that. I got to go and fire off, you know, machine gun. Boom, 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 boom. Here's what the Bible says. Some would say throwing, throwing Jesus glitter on things. Here's, here's, here's what Jesus does. Here's what Jesus says. When I found that scriptures can be very powerful when questions are asked, when something is brought up, when someone says to me, where are they at right now? I'm, I'm, I'm with them when they're grieving. Where are they at right now? And I can start talking to them about what the Bible says about the intermediate state, about what it's like when you die now before you're resurrected. We can start having conversations that are good and helpful. The Bible says that they looked upon him and their faces were radiant. Out in, I think it's Psalms 35. 
I love that for the intermediate state. They're looking upon him and their faces are radiant. And that can bring peace in the midst of a conversation. And listen, you can get stuck in grief. I don't want to spend too long on grief here now, but I just want to say you can get stuck in grief and grieve too long. You never really move on from that person who you loved and lost. If it's a child, if it's a parent, if it's a spouse, but you move forward and you get to a place where through the grieving process, you are healed. You have to have the grieving process to be healed. And if you cut off that grieving process, that's a real problem. Um, I've seen people do this. Sometimes it's through alcohol. You're hurting severely. You've lost someone you loved. And so you start to drink and you drink too much and you think it's helping you, but it's not. It's suppressing. It's hurting you sometimes through drugs with marijuana being legal now. So they're just looking for a way to medicate. They're self-medicating. Sometimes, and this is important, through relationships, too early. So when you enter into a new relationship, there are endorphins. Is that, what is going on over there? Are you guys like going crazy from that? That would drive me nuts. Uh, Jim's going over to investigate. All right. Um, so, um, new relationship. So someone loses a husband or wife and they're in a relationship within three months. Have you ever seen that happen before? What's happening is the new relationship is like a medication because the endorphins of a new relationship kind of bring a medication to them. And I just want to, to just have you resist that. Go ahead and, and, and face the, the grieving and get to a point of healing. I grieved deeply the loss of Lisa for about a year and nine months until I felt like I could enter into a relationship. And it was a deep grieving. I'll tell you what, being a home alone at, at, at 50, what was I, 52 when she died? At 52 years old, being a home at home alone was brutal for that year and a half. But I knew I needed to go through that for it to be healthy. And even when someone came along and a relationship was possible and I said, I'm not ready yet, then they got upset at me because I said I wasn't ready yet. But you got to know when you're ready. And when Kathy finally came up, she came up here. She was going to Castle church. I wasn't going to date anybody from the church here. And there were some gals that were coming just because I was single. Not that I'm any great prize, <laughs> but I am a pastor. And uh, what they didn't know is I wasn't going to date anybody from the church. Because if I date and break up with them, I'll split the church, right? You guys will all be angry at me that I, that I broke up with one of your friends. So I wasn't going to do that. And so when Kathy came up and I was like, ooh, and all of a sudden I realized, you know what? I'm, I'm ready to move forward with my life. And God, after that year, nine months, I met her. And in two years and eight months, we were married and God brought us through it. So grieving is an interesting thing. These guys lament for him, even though they know he's in the presence of God. They're not grieving like those who have no hope, but they are grieving for him. Now, in verse three, it says, as for Saul, he made havoc on the church. What a statement. Havoc. Saul made havoc on the church. How bad was this great persecution? Let's get an idea. It says entering every house, every house, and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. What kind of things did Paul do? Well, we get an idea. Acts 9, 1 and 2. Then Saul, breathing threats of murder. So he, he threatened them with murder against the disciples of the Lord and went to the high priest for letters for the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any there who were of the way, Christianity will be called 
Christianity later on in the book of Acts in Antioch. Right now it's called the way. Um, whether men or women might be bound to Jerusalem. So you go to Damascus, get the men and women and bring them back to Jerusalem. In Acts 2.24, Paul's telling his story. He's now become a Christian. This is later in his life. And here's how he looks back on these days. I'll read you two passages here. Acts 2, Acts 22, 3 and 4. I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicily. I, uh, but brought up in this city, he's in Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our fathers in the law, and was zealous towards God as you are today. I persecuted the way until death. He was responsible for the death of certain Christians, binding and delivering them into prison, both men and women. Now in Acts 26, again, he's telling his story. And he says this, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. So we're talking about this great difficulty in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So he was on the Sanhedrin by this point. We don't know if he is when Stephen's killed. But by this point, he has a vote and he casts the vote against Christians. This is Paul, the apostle. And then he says, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Now, I don't know how Paul compelled them to blaspheme. Maybe he beat their wives until the man blasphemed or beat their kids until they blasphemed or whatever it was that Paul did, but he compelled them to blaspheme. No wonder Paul says, I am not worthy to be an apostle. I am the chief of sinners because he was part of this great persecution that hit the church early on. It goes on saying, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So this is what Paul did. Now, now Paul becomes really the leader in the church by the time we get to the second part of the book of Acts. And as Paul is the leader of the church, could we connect that to Stephen falling on his knees and saying, Lord, don't hold this to the, their account? Now, Paul will have a, very, a lot of difficulty forgiving himself. He never talks about specific details. He never gives a story. They must have been heart, hurtful for him to think back and remember about him making people blaspheme, voting for their death, seeing them die, getting them and bringing them to prison, having that person die. But God has this thing where he uses that which is evil to bring about good. Now, a variation on the atheist argument that if they're suffering in the world, there can't be a God, which the two are not mutually exclusive. It's not like a square circle where you can't have both of them. They just don't see that it's compatible for there to be suffering in God. So a version of this is if there's evil in the world, there can't be God. Now, this is an easy argument to cover because if there's no God, how is there even evil? If we're a product of evolution and we're just moving on to further ourselves, which is what evolution does, how is anything evil? How can there be any morality if there's, if there's, if there's evil in the world, then you believe there's good. You're able to define between the two. And so you're now borrowing from God to argue against God, and that is not effective. You can't do that. But God uses even evil to bring about his plan. We see that ultimately on the cross. Jesus was condemned by evil men who had him crucified under Pontius Pilate and God used that evil to bring about salvation for every one of us. Now in the book of Genesis, there's the story of Joseph. 
Joseph's dad had four wives. Now, some of you guys here go, oh, four wives. It was not a good thing. He loved Rachel. The Bible says that he went and saw Rachel by a well, kissed her and cried. I don't know what that's about, but I find that girls generally go, how romantic. <laughs> he kissed her and cried. I don't understand it, but I guess you gals do. And he wants to marry Rachel, works seven years for her. Laban, her dad, slips in the ugly older sister on the wedding night with a veil on. So he marries her, consummates the marriage, wakes up in the morning, and it's Leah, not Rachel. And he goes to Laban, and Laban says, well, we have a custom that we can't marry off the younger before the older's married off, which falls in the category of, you should have told me that before. And he says, but I'll give you Rachel now. You can marry her, but you got to work for me for seven more years. So he works a total of 14 years, seven for Leah and seven for Rachel. But he gets her right away. But you've got two sisters married to the same man. How can that be good, right? And then they have two, and their father, Laban, gives them two uh, maids to serve them, Zilhah and Bilhah. And then they start having a competition on how many kids each of them can have. And Rachel doesn't have any kids. She's barren. And so she gives Zilpah or, or Bilhah, I can't remember which one, to Jacob as a third wife. And he starts having kids by her. And so then, then Leah stops having children. And so she gives him her handmaiden. Now he's got four wives. And they don't have any, and Rachel doesn't have any children until the 10th child is born, 11th child is born, and that's Joseph. Joseph is born and Jacob favors him. Now, favoring his son over the other sons of the other women because he loved Rachel, that's just a product of having many wives. Uh, polygamy in the Bible is never a good thing. It's always bad. It always ends up being bad. People say, why does the Bible allow polygamy? Just go read the stories. God said, for this reason, a man and a woman shall leave their father and mother. The two shall cling together and become one flesh. That's God's plan. Not four women and one man. That wasn't God's plan. Didn't mean it didn't happen, but it wasn't good. And the brothers got jealous of, of Joseph. Rachel had another son. This is so tragic. His life is so tragic. It's just full of tragedy. She has another son, Benjamin, and she dies having him. And before she dies, she names him Ben-Onai, son of my sorrow. And when Jacob hears of her death and weeps over his wife that he loves, he then takes his son Ben-Onai and says, you shall not be Ben-Onai, but you shall be Benjamin, son of my joy. You're not going to go through life as son of my sorrow, but you're the son of my joy. Well, Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. They want to kill him. They are so jealous of him because the father's putting him in charge of them. And they, they, they kidnap him. They pretend he's dead by giving the coat that his father had given him covered in goat's blood, saying, we found this coat. Does this belong to your son? And then Jacob sees the blood. I mean, a tragic life, right? And he thinks, my son is dead. And he weeps over Joseph. But when they were going to kill him, they, a, a, a caravan of Ishmaelites were going by. And they said, what good is it if we kill him? What do we profit from that? So they sold him to the Ishmaelites. He was sold to Potiphar, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. Now, God's already starting to work something out. God has a plan for Joseph, but it's for him to be a slave for a while. Potiphar's wife accuses him of trying to rape her. He gets thrown into prison where they put him in feathers and cripple his feet. So he will now walk with a limp at least the rest of his life. Never again will he walk the same because his feet have been crippled. He then can interpret dreams. He interprets the baker and the um, butler's dreams in prison, who had been thrown into prison. One of them gets released to Pharaoh. 
when, when Pharaoh has this disturbing dream about a skinny cow and a fat cow, Joseph, he tells him, I know a guy who can interpret dreams. And Joseph comes out and says, the fat cow was seven years of plenty and you need to hoard things during that time because the skinny cow, the seven years of famine are coming and you'll be able to save many people alive if you hoard during the time of plenty. Well, he doesn't want to do it, so he hires Joseph to do it. So he brings Joseph out of prison, puts him second in command over all of Egypt, and he fills the storehouses of Egypt with grain. And when the famine hits, it hits Canaan. His brothers come before him. They don't know who he is. He treats them harshly and then finally reveals himself. I am your brother. And they weep and they cry and they are reunited. It is extremely powerful. And then their dad is brought to him and he's able to see his dad who can embrace his son that he has lost. And then they move into Goshen. They, the father ends up dying. And the brothers are like, I wonder if Joseph would be nice to us because dad was alive. So they go to Joseph and they go, we were remembering our faults these days when we sold you into slavery. Here's Joseph's response. Joseph says to his brothers, but as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Satan means our difficulties, struggles, his attacks for evil, but God means it for good. So when you say, why would God allow Satan? Why would God allow evil in the world? Because God means it for good. Because our God is so great, he can take suffering and use it for good. He can take evil and, and bring it about for good. I'm not saying it happens all of the time. I'm not saying it's always happening. I'm just saying that's the kind of things that our God does. He brings them about. Now, Philip, it says in verse five, goes to Samaria and preached Christ to them. The Samaritans are interesting. They're a different group of people, remember? Remember the Good Samaritan? It's, it's a radical story because it's not a Jew who stops and helps the man who's been attacked, but it's someone they don't like, a Samaritan who stops and helps him. The Samaritans were a mix between the Assyrians under Sennacherib, who had taken the nation of Israel captive. It's a divided nation. The nation of Judah stands against Sennacherib with Isaiah and Hezekiah. They aren't taken. So Judah remains, it's a divided kingdom, but Israel is taken and this, the, the, the capital city of Israel is Samaria. And in Samaria, they plant Assyrians and the Assyrians marry Jewish women or Jewish men marry Assyrian women and they have a whole new breed of people called Samaritans. They aren't Assyrians and they aren't Jewish and the Jews don't like the Samaritans even though they're living in Israel. There's tension between them. But Jesus says, in John 4, I must go through Samaria. And he meets a woman at the well who's a little uppity with him. And finally, he says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you say rightfully, you have five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. We worship on Mount Gerizim, you worship in Jerusalem. What's the proper place to worship? And Jesus says, the day is coming when you will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And then he goes to Samaria and many of them believe that he's the Messiah. It says in John chapter four, he stays there two days and many of the Samaritans believe he's the Messiah. Now we go to the church age. Persecution starts and Philip goes to Samaria. Now we're gonna pick this up next week We'll talk a little bit more about it, but we see the great persecution 
brought them to Judea and Samaria to this people that already had a relationship with Christ and many more of them are going to believe. So it says in verse six, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, having and seen miracles which he did, for unclean spirits came crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. Now we see in Jerusalem, there's this, this havoc by Saul, but in Samaria, there's healings taking place. Now we talked about this when we talked about miracles, that God does do miracles today, but he's doing miracles in Samaria as a sign to the preaching of a new people who haven't, this is the first time anyone's gonna be saved besides Jews in, is in Samaria. And so miracles are done there by the hand of Philip as a sign for what he's saying being true. The miracles themselves don't testify to the truth of it. They point to what he's saying so that the truth of what he's saying can be accepted. Now that's in the study that we have in Acts chapter three on how God used miracles in the early church. We have that in there. But notice in verse eight, and there was great joy in that city. In the city of Jerusalem, there was great distress because of the great persecution that Paul was wreaking havoc on them, being arrested, being made to blaspheme, being put to death. But out of that came joy in Samaria as people came to Christ. We never know what God's doing. And Paul said that I might complete the work of God in my suffering. Are you willing to suffer if others could come to Christ through your suffering? Are you willing to face difficulties if God will use that in other people's lives? Greg Laurie, pastor of, of Harvest Riverside, lost his son, Christopher, at 32 years old. He had been wayward for many years and just come back to the Lord and then got in an accident and he, he was killed. On the day he was killed, Greg Laurie, on the, on the weekend after he was killed, he didn't preach that weekend, but he came out before the service looking at his body and said, I want you to know I'm going down a road that I would never choose to. I would never choose to lose my son, but I will go down this road and I want you to know that I still believe. When we face trials, difficulties, things that are hard, the world looks closer at us than ever before and light shines brightness in the dark. And so if you are in the midst of darkness, but still trusting in Christ, there is a brightness that shines in your life. Now, three things in closing. Number one, we never know what God's doing. That's why we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We don't want to pray, that, demand that our prayers be met. We trust in God, that sometimes God delivers and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he heals and sometimes he gives you the faith to go through the illness. This is the God that we serve. And the false teaching of the faith movement that if you are not healed, you don't have enough faith is just that. It's a false teaching. It is unbiblical, unsubstantiated in the pages of scripture. We never know what God's doing. Number two, God's ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. This means God chose to use evil and suffering and difficulties for his purposes. And the great example of that is Jesus on the cross. And if Jesus did it, and it happens in our lives, then we understand it. God does things at a higher level than we do them. God created a world where there's suffering. Probably, when, when we ask that question, why would God create a world where there's evil and suffering? Probably because in the midst of the evil and the suffering that we go through, 
we begin to look towards God. If there was no evil, no suffering, no injustice in the world, then we might never look for God. We might just be moving down our lives, living our own lives. But a lot of us, it was through difficulties and hardships that we came to Christ. We understand that God created a world where those things are a part of it and that God does things higher than his thoughts are higher. His ways are higher, higher than the heavens are above the earth are his ways. Number three, God uses difficulties to grow character. I'm back to the to the boot camp analogy. God uses the difficulties because he's doing something inside of you. He wants you to have character. He wants to develop something inside of you. We know God's changing you. And the Bible clearly teaches that God uses trials to bring about patience, to bring about character in your life. And so in essence, in the end, we want the trials, even though we don't want the trials. I don't want the suffering. I don't want the trials, but I'd rather have the character that results in it than not having the suffering and the trials. So like Paul, I'll say, may I complete the work of the Lord in my suffering? I don't think I'm completing the work of the cross. That's already done. But the, the people that need to hear Christ, we live in the world too. God doesn't take you out of this world. God doesn't put a bubble, doesn't bubble wrap you when you get saved so nothing bad happens to you. But you are going through life, having struggles and difficulties, ministering to people who are going through life, having struggles and difficulties. And it makes the most effective work of the gospel when we live our lives for him. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage which helps us to understand that you use difficulties, hardships, even evil and suffering to bring about good things. That not only are God and evil compatible, are God and suffering compatible, but you actually use them and created a world where they would drive people to you, where we cannot be satisfied in ourselves, but we have to look out because we don't have what it takes. We need you. And we thank you for this work in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.